Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Good to be in this room with you. Uh, if you um, have spent any time at all um, growing up in the church, particularly in your teens, but or if you've been to a summer camp or maybe even a neighborhood group, chances are you've played a game uh, called Would You Rather? Uh, who's played Would You Rather? You know what I'm talking about? It's also known, I think, as either or or this or that. If it's new to you, it's pretty easy. Uh, someone leads or you take turns, you call out two choices and you need to pick one. So, and often you declare, if you're in youth group, you declare your choice with physical movement. So all of the Coke people move to this side of the room. If you're into Pepsi and wrong, this side of the room. And then, so you just play things that way. Sorry, Scott, I didn't mean to. Or now I just outed you as a Pepsi person and that's, it's not, it's not the end of the world, right? There are, big, there are bigger issues. So a few examples. Would you rather be uh, a deep sea diver or an astronaut? Would you rather be a giant hamster or a tiny rhino? Um, important decisions. Would you rather be able to stop time or fly? Any takers on that one? Stop time? Hands up. Fly. Oh, vast majority want to fly. So the game can be kind of fun if you're in the right mood, if you're with the right kind of group and maybe the right age. Um, it, it's a good icebreaker, but it can also be challenging depending of course, on the questions asked. So, would you rather be popular or smart? Would you rather find true love or $10 million? Would you rather be stranded on an island alone or with someone you hate? <laughs> One more. Would you rather have our children be exposed to would you rather or not ever have to play it? <laughs> The game can be fun, it can be challenging, but I gotta say at the moment, I lean toward the ladder camp on that last one. Why? Because I, I wonder to what extent a game like Would You Rather reinforces the development of false dilemmas. The mentality that there are only two choices available and that I always need to take a side. Now I realize there are clear either ors, there are true dilemmas, there are true binaries in life, and it's necessary and important for all of us, our kids included, to be able to draw a line, to choose between two options, to take a stand for one thing over another. But I have concerns about raising kids where decisions are often unnecessarily reduced to two choices. And so we have the arising of the versus culture. You are either for us or against us. I thought you cared about other people, but I was at that fundraiser the other night and I didn't see you there. <laughs> or a child to a parent. Either you buy me this book right now or you obviously have decided that reading isn't important at all. <laughs> Richard Rohr said the dualistic mind is essentially binary, either or thinking. It knows by comparison, opposition, differentiation. It uses descriptive words like good and evil, pretty, ugly, smart, stupid, not realizing there may be a hundred degrees between the two ends of each spectrum. Dualistic thinking works well for the sake of simplification and conversation, but not for the sake of truth or for the immense subtlety of actual personal experience. Now, to be clear, I am not pinning all the blame for dualistic thinking on would you rather. Uh, there are many forces at play that continue to foster an exclusively dualistic mindset. And also to be clear, I'm not saying all dualism is bad. 
We need it to function in daily life. We need it to engage our work as teachers, as nurses, as students, as scientists, as actors and engineers. It is helpful and even essential as far as it goes, but it doesn't go far enough. The dualistic mind has a hard time processing things like God, mystery, grace, suffering, death, love, or the thing that we want to consider this morning, unity. Unity. So we've got a few weeks left in our series that we're calling Life's Too Short to Pretend You're Not Religious. We looked at a number of themes. Life's too short to pretend you don't need vision, story, community, renewal, formation. Lance last week talks about, talked about the marks of practice. And this week we want to look at unity. And I have to confess a couple of things about how I feel coming into talking about unity. One is I feel out of my depth because unity... Really? Is it actually possible? Look around. Look at the world. And yet I'm also hopeful because it's one of the main things that Jesus prayed for. So a mix of feeling kind of hopefully out of my depth. So I want to invite you to open a chair Bible or your own if you've brought it with you to John chapter 17. Okay, Kathy, anything I can do? You all right? Good, good. Thank you for your work, Whitney. We've spent a good part of this year looking at some of Jesus' and best-known teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And here in the closing chapters of John's Gospel, we have some of Jesus' best and most well-known praying. So this text is one of those gems in Scripture. Jesus is nearing the time of his death, and we get to listen in on what was most pressing, what was most essential to Jesus during his last hours. If you've ever experienced a loved one coming to the end of their life, you know that what tends to surface in those last conversations in those last days is the stuff that's most important. John 17, picking up at verse 20 to 23. My prayer, says Jesus, is not for them alone, that is his disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity." Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. How does Jesus spend his last moments? He prays. For whom does he pray? He prays for those who believe because the original disciples faithfully passed down the message through space, through time, to communities of Jesus' apprentices all over the world, including a group gathered in Vancouver's downtown east side. He prays for us, you and me. What does he pray for? That all of them, us, may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. One, he prays for unity. Is it surprising to anyone else that this is what was at the top of Jesus' prayer list? 
He's almost out of time, and the thing he most wants future generations of disciples to know and to pass on is unity? I don't know. As someone who's helped plant a new church, I'd like to think Jesus spent time praying that we'd preach well, you know? And have good music and a decent kids program. From the things most churches deem essential, it's hard to imagine Jesus himself not praying for these things, that all of them may have sufficient parking, Father. (laughs) I don't know what your experience has been, but I mostly grew up with the idea that unity was important to the church. I heard the word in sermons now and then, youth groups, citywide worship gatherings, but ultimately a secondary concern. Kind of a nice bonus. So the message I somehow absorbed was like, get your preaching programs parking under control, and if you have time, try to get along with the other churches in town. But that is clearly not the way Jesus prioritized things. His prayer for his disciples was that they be united. Paul and the other early Jesus followers picked up on this as well. And when it comes to being the church, unity then is not optional. It's essential. The prayer Jesus himself prayed is a picture of what we might call the priority of unity. So here's the thing. You don't get to the place of holding unity as job one with dualistic thinking. The essence of dualism is binary, as we said, either or, would you rather? As some writers have named it, dualistic thinking is an egocentric operating system. An egocentric or egoic operating system. It's a way of reading reality from the position of the private, small, ego self. What's in it for me? How will I look if I do this? That's how the ego or the false self prefers to look at things. And this is the default hardware of neither, nearly everyone in the West, even those of us who are seeking to practice the way of Jesus. And if our ego selves are permitted then to take up all the space at the table as they so often are, There's no room for the other. So given that this is the way we often operate, it's easy to see why unity in the church gets bumped down the priority list. No wonder it gets relegated to an optional extra. Now some might be thinking, unity sounds nice. I can't help thinking, though, it's just some naive idealism. When I hear the word unity in my head, I keep seeing Christians sitting in a circle around a campfire Singing Kumbaya. What are we really after here? That's a fair question. I think we can go a a little bit of a way to answering that by asking ourselves, how would the original disciples have heard Jesus' prayer? What would they have interpreted? Or what if they would have interpreted unity as a sign that Christ is king? What do I mean by that? In the Roman Empire, the emperor's claim to be king was based on the idea that they reconciled together many different groups across ethnic and political and social and economic lines. So we know the message of Rome, right? Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And they carried it with them from city to city. So this peace came with the power of the cross which was the unmistakable signal to surrounding nations that it's in your best interest to submit to Roman rule. Rome would show up in your town and say something like, you can join us, and in exchange, we will offer you peace. Not only that, we will offer you security. We'll give you access to food and resources and military power, but 
if you refuse, we will crucify you. So knowing the empire's track record, many cities would respond saying, well, well, when you put it that way, where do I sign up? But of course, this was not a true unity. It was a unity based on violence and fear. And for Paul and the other New Testament writers, the evidence of Jesus' kingship was the same as it was for Rome in the sense that they bore witness to a Christ who, like the Roman emperor, held together a massive diversity of different groups across ethnic and political and social and economic lines, but with one key difference. Jesus did so without needing to resort to power, to violence, or to fear. So unlike Rome, the peace of Christ comes without a threat. He holds together all of these groups by the power of the cross, not wielding its power over others, but instead taking the suffering of the cross into his own body, dying to it and resurrecting over it. This is the true sign of true power. Speaking of Jesus, Paul writes, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether in earth, on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. He makes peace through the blood of his cross. The power of the cross brings the peace of Christ to the world, reconciles all things, and a unified church becomes the sign that Christ is king. For the early church, it was this coming together of ethnic groups, Jews and Gentiles, that was the sign to the powers and principalities, the very systems and spiritual powers that try to fracture the world. It was a sign that saying, their time's up. The message is this, look, God is bringing together all of heaven and earth, and it starts with these very different people living into the body they've been made part of. This is the sign that Christ is king. But again, we might be thinking, beautiful idea, but I don't see a lot of church people living into the body that they've been made part of. Isn't disunity the thing the church is famous for? I mean, how many denominations even are there? Isn't unity in the church merely a myth? I mean, because where is unity hardest? In our beliefs, in our theology. If I ever have a right to be mean, it's to those who don't believe like I do, right? Lance told this joke when he talked about uh, unity back in January in our Life Together series, and GQ magazine named it the 44th funniest joke of all time. So I'm on pretty solid ground here, especially due to the fact I haven't memorized it and I have to read it. So I was walking across the bridge one day. I saw a man standing on the edge and about to jump off. So I ran over and said, stop, don't do it. Why shouldn't I, he asked. Well, there's there's so much to live for. Well, like what? Well, are you religious? He said, yes. I said, me too. Are you Christian or Buddhist? Christian. Me too. Are you Catholic or Protestant? Protestant. Me too. Are you Episcopalian or Baptist? Baptist. Me too. Whoa. Are you Baptist Church of God or Baptist Church of the Lord? Baptist Church of God. Me too. Are you original Baptist Church of God or are you reformed Baptist Church of God? Reformed Baptist Church of God. Me too. Are you reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1879 or reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1915? He said, reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1915. I said, die, heretic, and pushed him off. 
That's some dark comedy. And this joke is not only always hilarious when told during a sermon, it's also the perfect example of dualistic thinking, and it's a perfect example of how toxic, how toxic dualistic thinking has been to the church and its witness in the world. Because when we cling to the dualistic mind in our beliefs, when we default to either or, to argumentative, combative postures in debating theology, we almost always end up dividing and judging, and separating, and devouring each other, which has the effect of slowly eroding our unity. The sign that Christ is king. You can see this thread in church history. Here's how it all plays out all too often. I'm in a church, I'm growing to love it, but after a while I start to realize how much people in our congregation don't agree on. First, we disagree on the best way to do the Lord's Supper, so we split. Then we realize we don't like singing the same worship music, so we split. Then we, people start talking about the rise of postmodernism, and so we split. And then there's a woman pastor, so we split. And then the decorating committee chose mauve. <laughs> they chose mauve for the carpet in the sanctuary. And over the years, we realize we, we don't agree on a bunch of topics. Baptism, the return of Christ, hell, alcohol, birth control, divorce and remarriage and spiritual gifts, and we split off again and again and again. Jesus prayed for unity to characterize the church, but too often disunity has been the trend. Is there any way to reverse it? How might we clear the path, find our way to a true unity? You see why I feel out of my depth in this, and yet also hopeful. How might we find our way to a unity that isn't just a nice idea or an optional extra? How might we find our way to a unity that isn't mere sameness or uniformity, but happens in the midst of diversity? How might we find our way to a unity that's deeper than being able to agree on enough things? How might we find our way to a unity that is a tangible, relational reality made possible by a spiritual reality. Is the unity Jesus prayed for even possible? John 17, may they be one, Father. How? Just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. A few verses later, in verse 26, from the message translation, we read this. I have made your very being known to them. This again, Jesus speaking to the Father in prayer. I have made your very being known to them. Your very being. Who you are and what you do. And so, and I continue to make it known so that your love for me might be in them exactly as I am in them. Notice all the occurrences of the word in. One of my mentors, Daryl Johnson, referred to the word in as that blessed preposition. Soren Kierkegaard said, when one has fully entered the realm of love, the world, no matter how imperfect, becomes rich and beautiful. It consists solely of opportunities for love. Is the unity Jesus prayed for even possible? I believe it is. When we give ourselves to the practice of remembering that we ourselves are held in love, the love the Father has for the Son, And when, from that place, we learn to hold space for the other, 
to live in tension, to forgive, to reconcile. And when we relentlessly keep Jesus at the center, unity is possible. And the God who has reconciled all things to himself, including us, is made visible in a reconciled people. Henry Nouwen said, one of the main tasks of theology is to find words that do not divide but unite, that do not create conflict but unity, that do not hurt but heal. If you've looked at your handout, by the way, that's the quote that's in there, but it's attributed to someone else. So to be clear, Henry Nouwen said it, not John Ortberg. He said a lot of great things, but not this thing. And when Brother Nouwen says this, he is clearly walking in Jesus' non-dualistic footsteps. What if we could adopt that kind of posture in our practice of being the church? What if? What might it look like? Well, again, if you've been around Artisan for about the past year, you will recall hearing about the one, two, threes. If you've come more recently, this will likely be new to you, but the one, two, threes have been borrowed from Eucharist Church in Hamilton, Ontario, and with their permission, we've been allowed to use and adapt this material to make it our own. Essentially, the one, two, threes are a way of doing theology that takes seriously the prayer of Jesus for unity. And because it does so, it emphasizes not just what we believe, but how we believe it. So to put it another way, the one, two, threes are a way of holding beliefs that make unity a practice instead of just a nice luxury, should we ever get around to it. Because sooner or later, you're going to bump into someone who believes differently than you do. And sooner or later, we need to learn that how we hold our beliefs is just as important as what we believe. As Lance did at the start of the year, I want to offer a brief sketch of the one, two, threes this morning, and you'll be hearing about it more in the coming weeks, and particularly as we approach our family meeting uh, in just a couple weeks' time on November 4 in the evening over at Soma. So the number ones are our core convictions. The ones are the parts of our faith that are absolutely core and central to the Christian story. So these ones arise from the scriptures, that Holy Spirit-inspired library that tells us our story. And what we're looking for with the ones are the markers of faith that root us collectively in this ancient way of following Jesus. We're looking for the beliefs that Christians across time and space have affirmed as true about the way the world works and about the true way that God has revealed God's self in our story. So we want to fit within that deep and wide movement. If only there was something written early on in the history of the church that could ground us. Well, lo and behold, there is. The Apostles' Creed is an ancient church document that Christians have used for almost 2,000 years to root themselves in the faith. And I want to invite us to, to read this together uh, off the screen. We don't recite it as part of our liturgy uh, these days, but... Chances are many of you are familiar with it, and so just invite us to read it together. I believe in God, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, 
the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Hmm. This simple, focused creed gives us a deep sense of Christian identity. It's wide enough for nearly all historic Christian churches to find themselves at home in it, but narrow enough that those who ascribe to a secular humanist point of view, the people we love, but can't agree with it. It makes a lot of huge claims while still leaving space for a huge diversity, and that's what we need our ones to be. So what about the days when you struggle to believe certain parts of the creed? That's okay. There's still space for you. None of us believe all of it all the time. But in holding the Apostles' Creed as the basis of our ones, we are saying that this is the God and the reality that we together are believing in. It is the faith we collectively submit to. Let me just say, this is where some dualistic thinking serves a good and clear and necessary purpose. Affirming the creed says there is a center that names and defines us, and so other claims on our center do not define us. So that's our one. Let's jump down to three. Threes are what we call our peripheral convictions. So the threes for us are all the things that good Jesus-following Bible-honoring Christians disagree about. As you can imagine, it's a pretty long list. Beliefs like the proper mode of baptism, how the Holy Spirit is active in the world in the church, the role of women in the church and family, the role of men in the church and the family, how the universe was created, divorce and remarriage, birth control, pacifism and just war, whether a Christian can serve in the military, how much money a Christian can make, whether Christians can have retirement funds, styles of worship music, styles of prayer, the rapture. Resurrection, modern-day miracles, alcohol use, tattoos, yoga pants, hats off during prayer. <laughs> there are a lot of threes. This is not to say that the threes don't matter. They do matter. They matter a lot. But this is where we need to move beyond dualistic mind. Why? Because unlike the ones, these are theological, ethical questions that are not as explicitly clear in Scripture and may be interpreted a number of different ways. So even though we come together with a sincere commitment to our faith, to our scriptures, we will disagree on important issues, and we must have the freedom in Christ to wrestle with the text authentically. And we are given that freedom because the peripheral convictions are not the core of their faith, even though they may feel crucial at the time. This is my thing right now. You know that feeling. Threes matter a lot, but they are not the core of our faith, and we ought to, as much as possible, strive for unity with others who disagree. Now, different groups will come from their own culture, from their own background, and they will bring with them to this very space the different beliefs and convictions. And so, in order to be united, we need to learn how to disagree in love and how to find a deeper unity. If your cynicism is still running pretty hot, you might be one that say, just learn to disagree in love. That's starting to sound a little kumbaya to me. Yeah, me too. Which is why humility needs to be at the center of this practice. I love how one writer put it. 
The flowering of Christian unity begins with the seeds of humility. It works like this. Unity requires understanding. Understanding requires conversation. Conversation requires love. Love requires humility. Not good? And so separating our ones from our threes allows very different people to be gathered at the table in a way that creates space for learning, listening, and prayer, and mutual transformation. So that's our one and our three. But what's really helped us move forward together is actually the number in between two, which is simply our unity as a church. And the belief that the unity of Christ's church is more important than where we land on our threes. We commit to being united together as a family, especially when we disagree with each other. So in essence, we learn to set aside a three in order to pick up a two. The two in the one, two, threes of theology is how we believe what we believe. The two is an agreement to uphold the priority of unity, not uniformity, as we hold our belief, as we speak openly and honestly about it with others and stay in the room. So this motion, this movement of laying aside our rights in order to serve the body and serve the other in our community is the Christ motion. Therefore, Paul writes in Philippians, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. This is not a sermon on Philippians 2, but did you notice one thing? I used to think when it said having one mind meant we needed to agree on everything. It's not about the what. This is all about the how. It's about the posture. In your relationships with each other, have your mindset like that of Christ, who made himself nothing, was self-emptying, It's freeing. I hope you hear that as freeing and liberating. Do you hear how the way of Jesus keeps beckoning us toward the horizontal dimensions of life? And do you notice how the way of Jesus is a way? That that how we do this matters as much as what we do? We are not here to merely practice the what of Jesus. Following Jesus is movement. It's action. It's being on the way with Christ. So the one, two, threes, we've found as an extremely helpful framework for the how of theology. But wow, is this going to take some practice? What are some tangible steps we can take? How do we learn to see our need for one another in this often divisive, polarized, post-Christian culture? How do we humble ourselves by admitting the truth that we can and must learn something from our sisters and brothers of other denominations and theological traditions. 
The author that I quoted earlier, Derek Vreeland, has offered some practical things we can do. I'm so glad I came across this. Seven livable suggestions, and I want to invite you to consider these with me as we move toward the Lord's table this morning. So the practice of unity, we talked about the one, two, threes in this framework. Here are seven things we can do. Reject, number one, an us versus them view of the body of Christ. We live in hostile space, and many of us are just tired of it. We live in a world where the rant has been elevated to an ugly art form begging for imitation. We could blame it on Jerry Springer. We could blame it on cable news. We could blame it on partisan politics. We could blame it on social media. We could blame it on the devil himself. Or we could come to the place where we discover and humbly admit that blame itself is the pawn in the us versus them game. If you're part of the church and you're seeking to follow Christ and you start to see things you don't like in another, another church, let's say, their interpretation of scripture, their emphasis, their preaching style, the way they conduct their worship services, the way they structure their leadership, whoever they happen to be, they are not of them. They are part of the us. Their church may be the ears of the body of Christ. And you, for whatever reason, may not like ears, but they're still part of the body. And if you feel the need to correct them, correct them like you would your little brother who's getting out of line, not like the bully in the schoolyard. Number two, repent of the sectarian elitist view of your tribe. If Seth Godin is right, then modern marketing is built around a tribal understanding of how consumerism works. And tribalism is alive and well in the North American church. We often seek our identity as Christians not because of a particular denomination, but because of our theological tribe. There are scads of divides. Calvinist, Arminian, liturgical, contemporary, complementarian, egalitarian, charismatic, open but cautious, conservative, progressive, just war theorists and the nonviolent, young earth creationists and theistic evolutionists, on and on and on it goes. I know you like your tribe. I like my tribe too. We like our tribes because we feel at home in them, right? The sense of security. We love our tribes because this sense of belonging reminds us we're not crazy, right? But let's be honest. Our tribe is not as great as we think it is. We have blind spots. We have weaknesses, We do not see the kingdom of God as clearly as we think. Maybe we are getting some things wrong. We need to repent. We need to make a turn. We need to ditch elitist attitudes and begin to value the Jesus we see in other tribes. It's a hard one for me. Number three, read and listen outside of your tradition. Read and listen outside of your, of your tradition. Leaders, influencers are readers, right? We all know that. We all have our favorite thinkers, teachers and writers and bloggers and theologians and authors and podcasters. If we only read books, if we only listen to podcasts from our tribe, we fuel our sectarian tendencies. An honest reading of books outside our tradition can help us see our blind spots and the value and the contribution of other tribes, even though we don't agree with everything. This great axiom from Aristotle, he said, it is the mark of an educated mind 
to be able to entertain a thought without accepting it. It's the mark of an educated mind to be able to entertain a thought without accepting it. Read outside your tradition. Number four, refuse to make fun of other traditions. In the article I was reading, Derek Freeland just talked about a time he did a spot-on impression of a certain Christian preacher during a sermon. It was of a guy who kind of begs for satire, smile, southern accent, sermon content. But once Derek recognized that this man was his brother in Christ, he couldn't bring himself to do it anymore. He said when he did it the first time, he looked down at his notes and he said, I I know I just sinned doing that. And he doesn't do it anymore. When we set up an us versus them partition, we vilify our brothers and sisters. When we mock, when we make jokes, we turn our brothers and sisters into caricatures. I am so preaching to myself on this right now. Both actions rob the other of their true humanity. Don't do it. Don't do it. Make jokes about your own tribe, sure, but refuse to turn those of another tribe into cartoon characters. Number five, replace agenda-driven prayer with contemplative prayer. As you spend time in prayer, set aside for a time the list of requests and learn to sit with Jesus with stuff. That's a really simplified definition of the contemplative stream. Sit with Jesus with stuff. In its most simple form, contemplation is a prayer where you center, or a form of prayer, where you center your mind, your heart, your focus and attention on Jesus, and you wait on him. We were with our leaders just last weekend, our leader cohort, and I invited them in the first evening to do a self-assessment, and it's called, How Is It With Your Soul? 17 questions. How often does this happen? How often does that happen? How is it with your soul? It's what the early Wesleyans used to say to each other at their small group meetings. How is it with your soul? And the, the encouragement in this particular exercise was to not be harsh with yourself. Be gentle. Be gentle with yourself. And if you notice something that is really rising to the surface, then to simply say to God, well, what are we going to do about that? There's a we. What are we going to do about that? You wait on him. Pray for the church. Pray for the whole church, especially pray for the tribes within the church with whom you disagree. But don't ask God to change them. Ask God to change your heart regarding them. Better than that, present that tribe to Jesus and just sit in silence and wait. Perhaps Jesus will allow you in due course to see things from their point of view. I'm going to share a quote with you that I love, and I've kept the masculine language in it, partly because it was written in another time, but mainly because it was written by a woman who was uh, executed in Auschwitz, and I know she was also referring to women when she wrote it. She said, each of us must turn inward and destroy in himself all that he thinks he ought to destroy in others. Each of us must turn inward and destroy in himself all that he thinks he ought to destroy in others. For anyone tempted to think of contemplative prayer as a nice and comfortable and safe or even lazy form of prayer, you haven't understood it or you haven't given yourself to it. Miss Eddie 
is bang on in describing the kind of soul work that happens in stillness and in solitude. Contemplative prayer is a relentless commitment to ongoing ego destruction. And it's also infinitely good and fruitful. Restore confidence in the creeds, number six. I understand, I get the desire for doctrinal purity. I share the conviction for the church to be driven by right doctrine, by the historic orthodox teachings of the church, but we don't determine orthodoxy or right doctrine from within our tribe. We define orthodoxy by the creeds, by the councils of the church. And the creeds and councils unite us. They comprise the essentials of the faith. They give us the guardrails in which we can explore the non-essential issues of the faith. Or to put it in language of the one, two, threes, the creeds provide the ones from which we can wrestle with the threes. In the end, we don't get to determine the criteria for who is an orthodox Christian and who's a heretic. The creeds do this for us. And finally, number seven, reaffirm the centrality of Jesus. Our unity as the body of Christ is found in Christ alone. Jesus is who binds us together. And he's looking at us, his fractured and tribal church, and says, by this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This love is a love cultivated along the Jesus way where Jesus is first, where Jesus is preeminent, central, and reigning as Lord. The only real hope we have to experience Christian unity is our self-emptying allegiance to Christ. He's the head of the church. We will only be unified if we look to him. One of the ways we do this every Sunday is by practicing communion. I want to share with you one short little quote as well as this image. Um, And then I'm going to lead us in prayer. So let's just consider this for a moment. This Lord's table, this thing that we gather around every single Sunday is scandalous. It's scandalous in that it liberates both the oppressed and the oppressor. It's not a reward for those reconciled with God, but the way God sanctifies us through making peace with each other. So we say we want to get right with him. God says, then get right with them. Get right with them. We do that here. We do that in this place. And the Lord invited us. He prayed for it, and then he gave us a ritual action to follow. Whenever you come together, do this. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this as I showed you. So let's have just a moment of stillness to sit with Jesus with stuff, to consider these practical things, these invitations. And let's ask together. Let's ask the Spirit, what are we going to do about that? Just invite you to listen. Then I'll close and we'll come to the table together.
Loving God, the, uh, the words of the psalmist from Psalm 51 are coming to mind where he says, you desire truth in the inner being. So whatever truth, stuff, has been named and surfaced in our hearing this morning as we've listened to you in quietness, as we've uh, journeyed with the scriptures, as we've considered these invitations, we invite you to come as a consuming fire. I invite you to come, burn up. Our us versus them mentalities, our elitist views of our own tribes, our refusal to see and to listen outside our own traditions, our resistance to affirming you as center. And anything else more specific, more broad, whatever it is, just trust that you've been present with us and that you've been speaking, been moving. And we offer ourselves to you afresh and a new understanding, knowing, confident that you have not come to condemn, but to save, to welcome us back. It's your kindness that leads to repentance. So we joyfully turn to you. And we receive again your invitation to join you at your table where all who need it are welcome. Help us to continue to see you in our day, in our week, as we go from this place. And we continue now to respond in worship by coming to the table together in prayer in all these different ways, and we trust that you'll continue to meet us. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, if you would join me in uh, responding in our table liturgy, I invite you to respond with the bold text. The gospel is the good news. That our Father, the Creator, out of His great love for us, has come to rescue us.